Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. How professional the Mexican but Are we ready? Oh, I don't reform trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened. No role at all in BNEFT negotiations. Welcome to another episode of 35 West. This week, I am very pleased to be speaking with Moises Rendon. We want to use this episode to better understand what is cryptocurrency, how cryptocurrency has become a lifeline for many Venezuelans, and how the Venezuelan experience may help us respond to other humanitarian crises around the world. Moises is the former director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative and a former fellow with the Americas program here at CSIS. I would like to start off by thanking Moises for all his excellent contributions to CSIS. He spent the last five years building up the Future of Venezuela Initiative, one of the most important platforms for all things Venezuela. Moises is transitioning out of his role as director of the Venezuela Initiative, but he will continue to be affiliated with CSIS as a senior associate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Makim. I'm thrilled to be here. Moises, let's start from the beginning. Can you help us, can you help me, better understand what exactly are we talking about when we say cryptocurrency? And how do these currencies work and how do they differ from traditional currency? You know, a cryptocurrency is, is a digital or virtual currency that is secured by cryptography, which makes it nearly impossible to counterfeit or double spend. So the, the key here is that many cryptocurrencies are decentralized networks based on blockchain technology. And, and you know, I'm sure you have heard the blockchain word before, which is no, no more than a distributed ledger enforced by a network of computers. And I think that a defining feature of open and public cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that they are generally not issued by any central authority, making them, in theory, immune to government interference or manipulations. And I think this is an important factor, Maggie, that I'm sure we're going to dive deeper into the Venezuela case, no? But again, going back, not, not all cryptocurrencies are created equal. In fact, some cryptocurrencies are considered junk. <laughs> Uh, let me elaborate more on this because it's a critical point. There is a key differentiator. Cryptocurrencies are either built on the public blockchain or on a private blockchain. The best example of a public one is Bitcoin. It has all the features that we're talking about. It's decentralized. It's autonomous. There is no intermediary or a company running it. And therefore, it's censorship resistant. It's cost efficient. It's transparent, etc. But there are other cryptocurrencies built in private chains. And I, in fact, I think most of the cryptocurrencies that are in the market right now are private chains or are, are built on private blockchains. For example, when a bank or a central bank, like the Chinese central bank, is trying to issue their own cryptocurrency. Those cryptocurrencies are, again, you know, the creators argue that they are benefiting from blockchain features, but the reality is that these cryptocurrencies suffer from centralized points of failure, which are vulnerable to hacks. Moises, we are in the middle of a cryptocurrency boom, it appears. In 2013, the total crypto coin market capitalization was estimated at $1.6 billion. This year, 
it reached 1.7 trillion. Why do you think cryptocurrencies are being used more and more across the globe? Yeah, thanks, Maggie. This is a great question, but it's a very complex one, and it will probably take a full episode, if not a series, to you know unravel all of these issues. But here are my two cents of why cryptocurrencies have been growing across the globe, especially in countries like Venezuela again, or Syria, or South Sudan, where where you have closed societies, the economy is failing, and the you know there are authoritarian regimes in place. But again, okay, one of the main reasons I think crypto is growing so much across the globe is that the development of these cryptocurrencies in the last decade has been, you know, evolving at a breakneck speed, especially again in countries where there is hyperinflation, um, there are limitations to open a bank account, for example, or you have, again, totalitarian regimes like the one in Venezuela trying to control your own money. And, and I always say this, Maggie, because... Americans are hard, you know, they don't understand the benefits of cryptocurrencies as much because the, the economy here works. The economy in the U.S., somehow it works. <laughs> you have credit cards, you have access to banks, the inflation is relatively low. But for those individuals living in a 10,000% inflation economy like Venezuela or those Chinese nationals who wants to preserve their money outside of the control of their government, in Beijing, owning Bitcoin is an inefficient solution, no? and it preserves the value of their money, and it protects the money from their government. Now, I think another reason, more recently, in 2020 and 2021, we have seen a rapid development in the use of crypto, mainly driven by the involvement of institutional investors, for example, companies like Tesla, MicroStrategy, have converted parts of their portfolios into Bitcoin as an investment. Others like JP Morgan, for example, and Citi are exploring use cases for Bitcoin. But again, most of them are also permissioned or private blockchains for using international trade, intra-bank transfers as an alternative to typical technologies like SWIFT or ACH. So I think in summary, we've seen an organic growth of use of cryptocurrencies in countries where the economy, again, is failing or in closed societies where the government manipulates the currency and controls people's money. Great example is Venezuela. Let's focus on Venezuela. In February 2018, the Maduro regime launched the Petro, this first ever state-sponsored cryptocurrency. This currency was intended to allow the Venezuelan state to circumvent sanctions and access international markets. The Petro is based on blockchain, but in many ways it resembles a traditional currency. The value of the Petro is pegged to the price of the Venezuelan oil and minerals, raising some questions about the government manipulation of the Petro. Can you please walk us through the story of the Petro? What do you think the Maduro regime intended for it? And how did it turn out? I think Petro was simply an attempt by Maduro to circumvent U.S. financial sanctions against his regime. In early 2018, when the Trump administration was pressuring the Maduro regime through sanctions, Maduro's advisors, with some help from Russia, by the way, launched the Petro with a huge propaganda campaign. So as you mentioned, Venezuela, for bad reasons, was the first nation state to ever launch a so-called cryptocurrency. So simply put, the Petro 
is not a real cryptocurrency. It is a financial instrument created by the Venezuelan government built upon a closed system that claims to be a private blockchain. We don't have much information, Maggie, or evidence to support this claim. You know, the, the Petro is subjected to the regime's control, is unable to be mined, which is another concept we haven't discussed, is illegally backed. It supposedly is, is backed, as you mentioned, by a basket of natural resources, including oil reserves, iron, diamonds, and gold. But again, Petro is not international traded. And information, again, about the technology behind it, as well as how its issue is very limited. So it, it may be marketed as a cryptocurrency. But as you also mentioned, it more closely resembles a typical digital asset that you find in the traditional financial system. And yes, today the Maduro regime has been using Petro to pay pensioners, retirees, or even make gas stations to receive payments in Petro and so on. And yes, the Petro is back to the price of baskets of goods. Today I was checking the price of the basket is $56 right now. But again, I want to emphasize we don't have evidence of any transaction being made in Petro. At least I don't have it. I haven't seen it. And my research hasn't found any transaction. You only see people, you know, with screenshots of their banks accounts or digital wallet saying that they own Petro. But can they use the Petro? Can they sell the Petro? That's the question that I haven't found. And I haven't really seen that many transactions being made in Petro either. Venezuela is living a historic humanitarian crisis. Over 90% of its population lives in poverty and many households reporting irregular access to electricity and to other basic services. Only about 34% of Venezuelans have internet access, from what I understand. And yet Venezuelans have adopted cryptocurrency at a remarkable rate. Venezuela is currently ranked third in the world in terms of cryptocurrency adoption. Why are Venezuelans using cryptocurrency and for what purposes? And how are cryptocurrencies affected by sanctions? You know, I, I think there are four or five main reasons why Venezuelans are adopting cryptocurrencies. One of them, as we have discussed, is as a store of value. Venezuela hyperinflation is on track to reach over 1,000% by this year's end. Also, it is extremely difficult, Maggie, to make any payments in the collapsed state of Venezuela. Cash is a scarce and traditional payment networks are so overloaded that it regularly takes hours and good luck to pay the equivalent of $4 to a taxi driver, for example. Blackouts are also a factor. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that Venezuelans are using alternatives to preserve the value of their savings or make payments. I was checking in a recent study, both Venezuela and Colombia account for over 23% of total local Bitcoin volume. Local Bitcoin is a, for those who don't know, is a, it's a peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace. It's a website on the internet that allows you to trade Bitcoin with bolivares or dollars or any other currency. It's one of the most known exchanges on the internet. Just Venezuela and Colombia have over a quarter or 23% of the total of transactions of local Bitcoin, one of the most known exchanges on the internet. So I'll give you a picture of how much is being used. The other reason I think is why Venezuelans are getting into this industry is that cryptocurrency is opening 
a virtual humanitarian aid corridor, which have not previously existed in Venezuela or anywhere else. And this is important, especially in a country that is sanctioned like Venezuela, that is cut off from the global financial system. Some NGOs are limiting the suffering of thousands of Venezuela by receiving cryptocurrency donations, which are then used to buy food and distribute food on the streets of the country. One example that I know very well is called Bitcoin Venezuela. It's a nonprofit organization. They feed about 2,000 people on a daily basis just through donations of Bitcoin. These donations to these organizations are coming from all over the world and incur almost enough cost from intermediaries, which is also a great deal when it comes to humanitarian response, right? You have scarce resources and you want to use those resources as much as possible. Another great example that we have hosted at CSAS before is Acción Solidaria, or in English, Action for Solidarity. It's a, it's a well-known NGO that combats BIH and other illnesses in the country. And they're working with an organization called The Giving Block to create their own digital account and to receive cryptocurrency donations. So I see now traditional NGOs getting into the market because it just makes sense for them, not for humanitarian reasons. They're opening the door to other donor markets and it's easing their operations in terms of compliance and efficiencies. Security is another reason. You, Venezuela is one of the most insecure countries in Latin America, I believe after El Salvador. But the average Venezuela suffers from robbery or even national guards or police stealing their cash from them. That happened to me multiple times when I was living in Venezuela. I was robbed in different ways by police and by normal robbers. <laughs> I don't know. Venezuelans can safely protect their Bitcoin compared to their cash, right? It's just a digital money that you can place on your digital wallet. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, for a police to know how to access to it and to know that you have X amount of Bitcoin. So from a security perspective, it makes sense for Venezuelans to also use cryptocurrency. And, and you know, I can think of one or more reasons. Eliminating the middleman, as we have discussed, is an important factor. Venezuela, Maggie, I mean, it's illegal to have dollars, to have US dollars bank accounts in Venezuela, <laughs> despite that there is a dollarization going on in the country, right? But there is illegal to have bank accounts in dollars or in any other foreign currency. Uh, so the Maduro regime controls the country's financial system and therefore it has been using it as a social control mechanism. So with Bitcoin or open cryptocurrencies, Venezuelans are literally empowered to own and control their own money by passing the Maduro regime's controls. And finally, the only thing that I can think of besides those points is remittances, Maggie. Venezuela has become a recipient of remittances, one of the most important recipients of remittances countries in the region. Millions of dollars are entering Venezuela via remittances on a monthly basis. And, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. You have more than 5.4 million Venezuelans have fled since 2017. So many of those Venezuelans are sending money back to their families and friends no, since they left. So, uh, but again, as, as oil revenues dried up, the cash trap regime is taking steps 
to identify and capture hard currency or traditional currency remittances from a growing Venezuelan diaspora. And again, given that the country is cut off from the financial system, decentralized, neutral, and censorship-resistant cryptocurrencies, such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, could be used to mitigate the regime's controls and help their friends and family on the ground. Moises, I think you've done a great job helping us understand the role that cryptocurrency can play in a response to the Venezuelan humanitarian crisis, both in Venezuela and, and in neighboring countries like Colombia. What is the biggest challenge, though, that the international community faces in adopting cryptocurrencies for the humanitarian response? One that we haven't discussed much is how sanctions is affecting cryptos. No? And that's something that is important that we all understand. I mean, the Treasury Department and the EU sanctioned the Petro as soon as it came out. I think it was a wise move because Petro has been using for illicit activities illegally by the Maduro regime. But besides Petro, just as U.S. bank accounts have been closing Venez access to Venezuelans, also global digital wallets or exchanges have been closing accounts to Venezuelan nationals due to KYC and NML laws, uh, know your customer and, and anti-money laundering laws. And it's because, especially because Venezuela is sanctioned. So this is an important thing that I think the international community, especially the U.S. government, can do better to better understand how cryptocurrency is playing a positive role in Venezuela and make sure that the sanction regime is not affecting those lifelines for many NGOs and for many others. No? So that's one thing. The, the other one more broadly, to your point, is that, again, there is not much understanding or awareness of how cryptocurrencies can actually benefit humanitarian crisis. So on one hand, you have international humanitarian actors that needs to put more resources, more technical people, and more education to understand better how to use this technology for their mission, which is no other than limiting suffering of people across the globe. And it's a cost-efficient, it's a, it's a censorship-resistant, and it's a transparent technology that can be used for the good purposes. The lack of understanding, education, and awareness not only applies to the international context, but also in local communities, right? If you go to Venezuela, very few NGOs understand this technology yet. They don't know how to receive or open a digital wallet account, for example. So it applies to both sides, internationally and locally. That's a gap that needs to be filled. Education campaigns, raising awareness, and understanding of how to use this for the good. Other challenges, Maggie, are scalability. I mean, we, we haven't seen a nationwide effort to use cryptocurrency for humanitarian purposes, for example. We have seen the UN has been using crypto payments in a refugee camp in Lebanon, for example. But again, we're talking about a few thousands of users. But have we seen millions of users using cryptocurrency or organizations for humanitarian purposes? No. So how scalable is this is another challenge that I think we all need to work on. And, and of course, compliance, right? How to compliance cryptocurrency is different than compliance with fiat or with traditional money. Again, but it all comes down to education no? and to understanding better and, and working on the technology that is there. 
the technology exists and, and there are a lot of smart people working on so many startups and making projects possible. And so it's a matter of linking those private sector startups to international humanitarian efforts. And that's a gap that I see, by the way, I'm committed to help as much as possible to bridge that gap and make sure that those two worlds meet at some point. Moises, I've learned so much during this conversation. Thanks so much. It's been fascinating. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Is there anything that we should have asked you and did not? Anything you want to highlight? No, Maggie, I'm so grateful you hosted me now. You know, it's been, as you mentioned, over five years working at CSIS. It's a great place. I grow and learn so much about so many things. <laughs> and, you know, being a, a co-host myself of 35 West, this is just an honor to be here as a guest. And for those, your listeners, just want to make sure I'm, I'm going to continue working especially on this space, right? Which again, I don't think there is much understanding yet on how cryptocurrency and more broadly blockchain, right? We haven't talked about what blockchain can do on other spaces like elections or ID solutions and others. But I, I'm going to be focusing my energy, my research and my time on that space and trying again to bridge that gap between the international community and the tech world on how to use this technology for the good and for humanitarian purposes. So yeah, great to be here, Maggie. And I, I'm sure we're going to be, you know, coming back together. Thanks, Moises. I wish you absolutely the very best. And again, thank you so much for joining us today. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West. <laughs>